This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday Show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. And this is the Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, pretty much anything that's on your heart as it relates especially to what we believe as Christians or why questions about church, questions about how to get out of a mess you might be in, whatever's on your heart, all you need to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you are driving in your car and the streets are wet, so please be careful. The safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now band at the top of your screen. The rest can be hands-free. You will be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number one more time is 340-9585. It's Tuesday, so I don't have a bunch of stuff to talk about, so let me get right to some questions that have been sent in, and then we will uh, go to um, wait for your phone calls. Our first one is anonymous from our email inbox. And um, he or she says, aren't all the different religious groups, Christians, Muslims, Mormons, Buddhists, etc., experiencing the same God, yet explaining it in different ways? Thus, can't they all be true, but with each giving a different emphasis? Anonymous, uh, even the logic of your question makes no sense. Truth, by definition, is mutually exclusive. Now, the groups that you listed... Uh, with the possible exception of Buddhists, all claim mutual exclusivity to the truth. Christians believe Jesus is the only way. Muslims believe Allah is the only way. Mormons believe following the vision of Joseph Smith is the way. And they can't all be true because they don't say the same thing. They're at odds with one another in terms of the facts. So the whole idea, and I know it sounds so warm and fuzzy to say that we're all on the same road, going the same place, uh, but we're not. If Jesus is not the only way to heaven, then Jesus is a liar. He can't be God. It's just that simple. And Jesus, of course proved he was God, they killed him, he didn't stay dead. And he is not the same as Allah, he's not the same as Joseph Smith's Jesus. It's very important. 
And so there's no wiggle room here. You've got to decide. Jesus talked about a narrow road that is found by few and a wide road that that ends up leading to destruction that is well-traveled. Many find that road. And all other religions, all other belief systems are on that wide road on the way to destruction. Jesus said there's only one way and he's the way. So you might feel this way and it makes you feel good about other people but the truth is if you love people if you really care about them you'll tell them the truth and you'll tell them in love that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven you know anonymous one other thing that you need to think about is the problem isn't religion that's not why people get sent to hell we get sent to hell for sin and only Jesus has an answer for sin Only Jesus lived a perfect sinless life and offered to give us his sinlessness, his perfection, his righteousness. And since only Jesus has an answer for sin, he alone can take away the one obstacle standing between us and God, and that obstacle is sin. It always has been, it always will be, and there has to be a way out. So that's the answer to your question. Um... Hope you consider it and do so prayerfully. Here is a question that came in from our mobile app from Nacho. Um, He says, with the way the world has advanced women's rights to such a point that even in the Christian community, the push to have women as pastors has intensified. Do you think that maybe the enemy would use this momentum to make it so that a woman could become the false prophet during the great tribulation. Um, not Joe, I don't think so. Um, um, the, the, the passage of scripture that referred to the false prophet uh, and to the Antichrist as well uh, during the great tribulations are all masculine in form and gender. So um, I, I don't think that um, a woman is going to be the false prophet. Um, but we, we just don't have any real information about that. I think what we've got to focus on in, in situations like this and questions like this is that we've got to make a push to rely on the truth of the Word. And we've had a lot of questions about women pastors in the last couple of weeks. I'm not going to belabor the point again this afternoon. But the truth of the matter remains that, that the Bible forbids women to be in leadership in churches, and by leadership I mean in the role of pastor. All other roles are open. I'm going to be talking Sunday about de- uh, demons. I said it again. Deacons. And if you're a deacon in a church, I didn't mean anything by it. But um, we're going to be talking about deacons. And women could be deacons. Women were prophetesses in the in the New Testament. So there's only one role that's forbidden. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over men in the church. And the idea of teaching with authority is the role that we call the pastor. So they can push and push and push, but we need to remember that the church belongs to Jesus. He's the head of the church. He's then the one that makes the rules. And when he makes the rules, we decide whether we're going to follow him. If we follow him, then we're 
going to be spirit-filled Christians if we don't follow them, then we're we're not necessarily going to lose our salvation because of our disobedience, but we're going to lose the power of God. So I hope that makes sense to you, Nacho. Here is an, another anonymous question. It says, I heard you say on last week's show that cursing was sin. I don't understand the big deal if we don't mean it like cursing, but just curse out of habit. You know, Anonymous, one of the things that Jesus died for was that we would be free from our sinful habits. And remember, I just said something. Jesus is the head of the church. He makes the rules. He said that our speech ought to be wholesome. No coarse jesting. Don't let these words... We're to be brand new. And here's the thing. If you cursed, and clearly you did before you got saved, well, when you got saved, then you should change. It's not okay just to behave the way you used to behave once you have met Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's how important this issue is. Now, we also have to understand that the world that we live in, uh, foul language is no big deal at all anymore. But we're supposed to be separate from this world. We live in the world, but we're not of the world. Jesus said that we're to let our lights So shine before men that they see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Anonymous, if we talk like everybody else, if our language is filthy, um, Jesus said that filth comes from the heart. That means our heart is still filthy. So here's the thing that you have to consider. It is a big deal, a very big deal, because Jesus said it is. doesn't matter what your intent is. What about the man and the woman who accidentally kills somebody and say, well, I didn't mean it. Well, they're still dead. If you're going to walk with Jesus, you're not going to use that kind of language. It's just that simple. And if you refuse to change, then I would ask you to prayerfully consider whether or not you've really met Jesus. You see, we can come to him with all this filth, with all this garbage, Anonymous, but we can't stay that way. It's hard to explain to people who haven't had a born-again experience, but the truth of the matter is, is once you've met Jesus... You change. You cannot be who you once were because that old person is dead. And if you're dead and you're born again, made alive again in the power of the Spirit, well, then your life will then be a reflection of the one who saved you rather than the one who was put to death. I so worry about people who think that it's okay to say, I'm a believer, and then act like unbelievers, continue to live with no changes in their lives. You see, this is a transaction. When one meets Jesus, it's a transaction. It's a contract, a business deal. You give him your filth. He gives you his perfection. You don't get to take some of your filth back and walk in it. You don't even want to. So what concerns me about this question, Anonymous, is you don't think it's a big deal. And that would, to me, be a scary indicator that you haven't really met Jesus. You know about him, of course, but you don't really know him. And you need to change. You know, I tell people in our church all the time, that, you know, if you're really a believer, if you're really hanging out with Jesus, you're not going to yell at people, you're not going to lose your temper, 
You're not going to use foul language. You're not going to drink. You're not going to do drugs. You're not going to do these things. Because that's what the old dead you did. And now you got to decide who do you belong to. That's what you got to decide. Who, who's, who do you belong to? My prayer, Anonymous, is that you're going to decide that you don't want to belong to anybody but Jesus Christ. So thanks for the question. I worry about questions like that. 340-9585 if you have any questions um, for your live calls. Here's a question from Rita. If somebody lives a really bad life but accepts Jesus just before they die, how can God let them into heaven? Well, Rita, the answer is grace. Wonderful, wonderful grace. I've had the privilege over the years of being there and in some cases being used by God to lead people to to uh, to Jesus on their deathbed. Um, I didn't do it with my dad. I was there the next day before he went to be with Jesus. My dad was not a nice guy. Never lived one minute of his life for Jesus. He had a fall, um, was in the hospital. I sent a friend of mine from uh, the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas, and uh, uh, and and he led him to the Lord. Um, when I got there the next day, my dad was unconscious. I waited just a little while. He woke up just long enough to recognize me, and I asked him if he remembered Derek. He said, yeah, he's the one who told me about Jesus. And I said, Dad, you accepted him into your heart? He said, yes. And then he went to sleep. He never woke up. Um, but you see, God's grace is better than our sin. Now, there's a, I think, Rita, more a difficult problem uh, in terms of the motive behind a question like this. I fear that too many of us who are believers, we automatically assume that we're better than those people. Well, of course I've been a Christian. Of course I've tried to serve God. Yes, I'm going to go to heaven, but, but this person didn't do anything good. Well, neither did you. When God met you, you weren't any better than those bad people. We hated God. You may not have characterized it that way, but that's what Paul says to the church at Rome. While we were still sinners, God died for the ungodly. There was enmity, the King James word. It's a real vibrant hostility between us and God. And yet he reached down for you. Just like he reached down for them. I have a theory about this, Reed. I, I, um, I think, I can't say with certainty 100%, but I think most, if not all, of the people who uh, surrender their heart to Jesus on their deathbeds, I really do believe that those are the people that other people, Christians, have been praying for for a very long time. And I think God brings people to the end of themselves. I think that's how he answers our prayers. And those people are sort of set apart because of the prayers of believers. And God, in his mercy, I remember, I mean, what God wanted to do all along is save people. God's will is that none should perish. And because he wants to save people, he's using our prayers to accomplish what he wanted to do all along. And all we've got to do, Rita, is remember, we're no better 
than the worst of the worst. I've been a Christian now for 29 years, a pastor for 25 years. And you know the truth is, if I get any distance between me and Jesus, I'm just as bad, if not worse, than the jerk before I got saved. I can do every evil thing. My flesh is not any better than it was. I can control it a little bit better because I've been walking with Jesus. I've got the power of the Spirit in me. But but if I give myself over to my flesh, I'm as horrible as I ever was. So how can I stand before God and say, well, I'm a good person, Lord. I deserve this, but this person doesn't. And I think... Really, what we need to do as believers is we need to rejoice over the fact that God is eager to rescue us even with our last breath. So how can God let them into heaven? The answer is marvelous, beautiful grace. God's unmerited favor to the infinitely ill-deserving. The same way I was saved, Rita, the same way you were saved. Here is a question from Randy. He says, I know God is a God of love, but the Bible says he hated Esau. How can that be? Um, Randy, um, when, when Paul writes that, when that's quoting the Old Testament, that's um, Jewish relativism. So here's what he's saying. Jacob I loved. Esau I wasn't able to love. Now remember, Jacob was no better than Esau. Jacob was a con man, a manipulator, struggling for most of his adult life, trying to run away from God, yet God was, you know, hanging on to him. So it's not like Jacob was better than Esau, but Jacob allowed God to love him. Esau refused to allow God to love him. So that's what's being said there. God doesn't hate anybody. I had a question not too long ago in the program. Does God hate the devil? God, God's incapable of hate. Now, we know there are sins he hates. But the people, or in this case, the angelic beings who commit those sins, God hates the sin because it separates him from his creation. So, yeah, God hates pride. God hates lying. God hates all the other things that, that we Christians get involved in that separate us from him. But when we are in sin, God is unable, Randy, to love us the way he wants to. And the practical outworking of that is this word hate. God hates it. He can't love us the way he wants to. I wish we hated it as much as God does. But you're right. God is a God of love. There's no problem with how we could hate Esau. It's Jewish relativism. And Paul, a Jew, remember, is simply seizing on that idea. Good question, though. Thank you very much. You know, Randy, Esau, Esau, God, I said God couldn't love him the way God wants him to. Esau sold God out, sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. Now, I know men who get really fussy when they're hungry. But Esau, what good is it going to be? I'm about to die of starvation. Yes, he sold his birthright to his brother. Now, he was manipulated, but, but, but it shows his value or how he valued God. Uh, and the fact is he didn't value him at all. He valued a bowl of stew more than he valued knowing God. 
Here is another anonymous question. I've been waiting to get to this one for several days. Uh, he or she says, I don't know if God exists, but I think that if he does, he should make himself known clearly rather than all the mere speculation about him. Anonymous, there's no such thing as mere speculation. You know what I found interesting, Anonymous, over the years when I've had questions like this, uh, whether it's on the show or in person, that the people who talk about mere speculation or, well, you know, nobody knows for sure, and uh, th- that always comes from unbelievers. It always comes from unbelievers. How much more could God have done to demonstrate that he exists? Now, before Jesus, he gave us a conscience, Romans chapter 1. The conscience is the governor, the moral governor we have that keeps us from running off the rails into sin and depravity. He also gave us creation. It's almost like God painted this picture for us that nobody but God could paint. I mean, the sun comes up in the same place every day. It sets in the west every day. The winter is always the winter. The summer is always the summer. We have seasons. They happen at the same time. They're cyclical. I mean, the, the, the creation screams creator. We've had prophets telling us about the real God by prophesying things that they couldn't have known apart from God, and those things all came true. So I don't know how much more proof anybody needs. And then it's like God, the Father, was in heaven, and he's saying, well, you know, they're not going to believe me, so here's what I'm going to do. I myself am going to come to them. I'll send my son. I'll put him in the form of human flesh. So everybody can see how real I am. And of course, Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus was born a baby. And he lived for more than 30 years before he embarked on his ministry in fulfillment of all the prophecies about him. More than 300 prophecies. Jesus did miracles that prophets foretold he would do things that only God could do they killed him and just as prophesied he didn't stay dead I mean how much more proof does anybody need I mean we live in a time when people are enthralled with Marvel comic characters I think we get so lost sometimes in fantasy that we won't look at absolute proof. And then this one man, born in a really tiny part of the world, his ministry was confined into that little tiny part of the world. And yet, after his resurrection and the birth of the church, this one man has changed the lives of multiplied billions of people for 2,000 years. A billion times a billion. How much more proof does anybody need? People 
who think this is mere speculation are not being intellectually honest, and neither are you. So I can tell you he exists. I walk with him every day. I talk to him every day. I'm not just making it up. He's not my invisible friend. He's eager. He's more eager than I am to make himself known. Not just once, but every day. And I think for those of us who think there's no evidence, it's only because we haven't honestly tried to find it. It's there. It's staring in the face. And all you have to do is find out. So I'll close this half of the program with this. I challenge you, Anonymous, to find out if Jesus is true. I'm giving an easy book to read, A Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. If you want an easier one, know what we believe and why we believe. Two little paper books by a man named Paul Little, L-Y-T-T-L-E. And that'll just sort of be the tip of the iceberg. There is more evidence, and it's overwhelming. And all you have to do is be honest enough to admit Lee Strobel was an atheist before he was challenged to examine the evidence. So it's not just blind faith. It's faith based on fact. Overwhelming evidence. And I hope and pray that you will find out whether or not it's true. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left. Obviously, the phones have been quiet today. We'd love to have your calls, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back on the other side of the break. See you in two. Don't have time to call into the Word to Stand On for Life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here is a question I really like from Jackie. She asks... If Jesus is coming back soon, should Christians save money or give everything to advance the gospel? Uh, Jackie, the reason I like this question so much is because uh, our money doesn't belong to us. Everything that we have, everything that we ever will have, belongs to him. We have a tendency in our church culture to to, to treat our money like, okay, 90% of it's mine, 10% is Jesus's. And that's just not true. We're to, to Romans 12, 1 and 2. We're to give God everything, offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Now, Jesus is coming back soon, but we are to occupy until he comes. So in no way is my answer to be misconstrued. I am not saying that, of course, you should give everything to advance the gospel. But what Christians ought to do, Jackie, is to ask Jesus what he wants them to do with his money. Remember, we're stewards. Jesus told several parables um, about stewardship. 
Um, and, and, you know, people say, well, those are about money. They're, they're really not about money. They're about stewardship. So here's what Christians ought to do. We ought to say, Jesus, here's what you have blessed me with. What do you want me to do with it? And if we'll seek him on these things, if we'll ask him wisdom, he who gives wisdom generously, James says, do we not believe that God will tell us what to do? And then when we realize it's his and we give cheerfully, then God blesses us in return. He can't help himself. That's what he does. But we want to be good stewards. Now, I'm in no way suggesting that God is going to say, if you do that, that you should give everything away. No, we need to to prepare for the long haul. Live like Jesus is coming back any minute, but be wise in case he delays his coming. So, yeah, you should save some money. Yeah, you need to prepare for the future. Believe me, you're not going to be sorry you saved when Jesus calls us in the rapture. So, I guess my answer to the question is yes, we ought to save money, we ought to be good stewards of what God has given us. But we also then realize that, God, everything belongs to you. So how can I best honor you with what you've blessed me with? So that's what we ought to do. You know, one of the reasons, Jackie, that I think Christians embrace tithing. Tithing means a tenth. Um, They embrace tithing because it makes giving easy rather than sacrificial. We do it as a duty or an obligation instead of as a joy and a privilege. I think a lot of pastors teach the idea of tithing, though it is very clearly done away with with the fulfillment of the law. We're not, nothing is said about tithing. From the book of Acts on, Jesus talked about tithing, but remember his ministry was to Jews under the law. We're to say, Lord, it's all yours. What do you want me to do with your stuff? And if you'll do that, when Jesus comes back, believe me, he'll have a smile on his face. Well done, good and faithful servant. So, Jackie, I hope that answers your question. I know most of the time when I get questions about tithing or how much to give or or what to give, uh, you know, it's people are looking for very specific answers. They want me to tell them what to give. But remember that, that your stuff doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to anybody else. Give as the Lord instructs you to give, and you will never go wrong. Never, ever. And you'll have the opportunity, Jackie, to learn how faithful God is to bless us when we recognize that principle. One more thing, I don't want to be misunderstood again. This isn't a give-to-get scheme. And unfortunately, it's way too often taught that way. Well, you give God a little, he'll give you 30 or 60 times more. That's not it at all. But we reap what we sow. And then that means we ought to sow to the Spirit with our time, with our talent, and with our treasure. So, Jackie, thank you for asking the question. Martin, does God really need to pour out his wrath on multiplied millions of people by sending them to hell in order to save some? No, Martin, you don't understand God at all. Now, here's the thing I want you to understand. This is such a black and white issue. If we would think of it 
uh, in these terms, then the answer would be easy. Every single human, Martin, when you were born, you were going to live somewhere forever from the moment you came into this world, the moment you were conceived in your mother's womb. You were going to live somewhere forever and ever and ever with no end. And you're going to live either with God, we call that heaven, or separated from God, we call that hell. And God simply honors the choice we make in this life. He honors that choice in eternity. There's no way God could force us to come to heaven against our will. If we say, no, with with every breath of my life I've denied you, God's not going to override your free will once you're dead. You chose to be apart from me while you were born. I honored that choice into eternity. And again, that's what we call hell. So it's not a matter of what God needs. God simply honors the choice that we make. Now, Martin, here's the question I have for you. When I get questions like this, I just don't believe God, would, loving God would send people to hell. Um, what do you need to believe in God? I know we want emotionally satisfying answers, but... The reality is everybody's going to live somewhere forever. What choice have you made? And are you using the fact that you can imagine God judging people, letting people go to hell? Are you using that as an excuse not to believe? And if that's true, and most often it is, then you're simply rationalizing, continuing to sin, And God's not going to stop you. God sent his son to save you, Martin. Just to save you. If nobody else would have believed just just Martin was the only one, Jesus still would have died for your sins. I think that's pretty loving. And now you have a choice to make. Hannah says, whenever I'm struggling with something, my pastor always tells me to read more and pray more. Then he suggests that I serve more. I don't think that's enough. Can I have your thoughts, please? Uh, Hannah, let me apologize. I don't know who your pastor is, so let me apologize. I think sometimes uh, we who counsel in the Christian church, pastors and others, I think we're so... Works-oriented. Well, if I just study more, pray more, read more, then God will bless me. If I just go to church every time the door is open, well, then God will bless me. Um, That formula never works. Now, I want you to be with Jesus, and if you're with Jesus, you want to read about him, you want to learn more about him, and you pray more because you want to talk to him. You, You recognize that his presence is there, and you want to spend time with him. But that can't be the thing that you do to try to solve the problems that you have. So here's what you ought to do when you're struggling. Take a walk with Jesus and ask him, what's the source of your struggle? I think sometimes, Hannah, the struggle is our focus. We're focused on the things that we're dealing with rather than the one who can help us with those things. 
and I tell our church all the time, and I've got a beautiful, beautiful word picture in my my mind and heart when I say this, but but I think so often we're focused on that very thing that we're struggling with, and Jesus trying to get our attention, saying, no, 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 look up, look up. And I always picture Jesus with his, his hand under my chin, trying to push my chin up a little bit, so I'm looking higher and higher, looking beyond and above those things that I'm struggling with and looking into the face of God. What did David say? I looked to the heavens. Where does my help come from? It comes from you, the maker of heaven, the creator of all things. So we've got to understand that when we're struggling, we need to struggle to get into his presence. In his letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, Paul calls that working out our salvation with fear and trembling. But you see, the struggles, Hannah, the trials, God wants to use every one of those things to draw you so close to him that he can protect you from whatever is going on in your life. So it's not about what you can do. It's about you walking with Jesus and saying, okay, Lord, what do you want to do? Just get close to him. In his presence, the Bible says, there's fullness of joy. People don't believe that because they equate joy and happiness. Happiness doesn't really matter. This is about joy. Happiness fades. Happiness depends on our our circumstances. Joy is always there. So in his presence is the fullness of joy. Nehemiah adds, the joy of the Lord is my strength. So if you want strength to deal with your things, be in the presence of the Lord. And focus on him instead of what you're struggling with. Should you read your Bible more? Of course you should. Should you pray more? Yes, you should. Should you serve your church? Yes, you should. But if your focus isn't Jesus doing those things, then you're still going to have the same kind of struggles. So Hannah, look up. Look into his eyes. Let me ask you to take this homework assignment with you today. When the radio program's over, open the Song of Songs in your Bible and read all of the passages that are titled Lover. That's Jesus speaking just to you, Hannah, just to you. It won't take you long. Uh, It's eight chapters, and um, I think if you read just the parts of Lover, if you're an average reader, it'll take you eight minutes. So just read those refrains. Do it four or five times. And let Jesus convince you how much he loves you, how crazy about you he is. And when you're convinced of that, then your issues will sort of fade into the background. Henry says, in Revelation chapter 7, was the seal God marked 144,000 with, was it a physical seal? Uh, Henry, we don't have any idea. Uh, you know, we, we just, we're in the early chapters of Genesis. I'm going to be doing Genesis chapter 9 uh, tomorrow night. Uh, but but when Cain, um, after murdering his brother Abel, said to God, my punishment is more than I can bear. I'm going to be a restless wanderer and people are going to try to kill me. And God said, no, I will mark you. I'll put a seal on you to protect you so that nobody comes near you to do that. Um, We don't know if that was a physical seal either. So we don't know, but God is able to protect his own, that's for sure. So um, that's all we can say about it. We've got to be content sometimes, Henry, with not knowing uh, the answers to some of these details.
Good question. I am personally reading uh, in the mornings Revelation uh, right now. I just finished chapter uh, 17 today. Uh, so I'm going to be uh, wrapping that up pretty soon. And um, um, Revelation will encourage you. It will cause you to look up for sure. Sheila says, Pastor Ron, did Jesus have a physical body in heaven before the incarnation? Uh, the answer is no. He had a physical body only when he when he took on flesh, um, planted in the womb of Mary. Uh, but no, no physical body. Jesus always was. Um, but Jesus, like the Father, was spirit. Uh, and though he was the Son of God, crucified before the foundation of the world was laid, uh, there was a point in time um, in Bethlehem when he took on human flesh. The incorruptible became physical. You couldn't touch Jesus before that. When he became a baby, you could hold him. You could listen to make those baby noises. But though he always was, and he was always the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, he didn't have a physical body until he was born in Bethlehem. Thank you for the question. Let's take our first phone call. We've got Scott from Shirts on line one. Scott, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. God bless you, brother. Thank you, Scott. You too. Hey, um, I've got a question for you. Um, actually, someone came to me, and I kind of walked them through church discipline. Um, they were they were mentioning about a, a couple at, at their church that um, were living together. And I thought this would be a good question for you to kind of walk through, because I'm sure there's a lot of people that run into this situation. But there was um, I, I kind of walked her through the church discipline and, and, and how to approach them, and then and from there on. But something she said got me to thinking later, and I might have to have another discussion with her, but she said that they flaunt it and uh, that they're not married. And to me, that's basically telling me that they're not Christian. And would you treat them differently, or would you still go through the church discipline steps? And then the other part of this question also is, um, would it be okay if a couple kind of knows the other couple that are in the sin like that, if they went together as a couple? Because I did advise her for her not to go and speak to the man, um, to have another man speak to him. But uh, I just wanted your take on that and how you would deal with both scenarios, if it is if it is a Christian um, or if it's, it's someone that's not saved and they're attending your church. And I'm going to hang up and listen to you on the air. Thank you, Scott. Good question. You know, every church deals with this every time the church doors are open. Um, sadly, we have lots of people who are living together and or involved in a sexual relationship together with people that they're not married to. And somehow they think coming to church gives them the comfort of, well, I'm okay. God still loves me. This isn't a big deal. Just like the question that I had at the top of the program today about something, well, cursing is no big deal. Uh, well, we've, we live in a time when, when, sadly, even professing Christians think that their sexuality is no big deal. Oh, nobody does that. I had a man who um, appeared to be radically saved, Scott. Um, appeared to be radically saved. 
and um, um, he was living with a woman, remarried her, he, it was an ex-wife, uh, remarried her because he, he just wanted to please the Lord and seemed like he was the real deal. Um, and then he drifted back into his old habits, ended up leaving her, and, and, and uh, you know, my heart was broken, but I treated him like an unbeliever. Now, most of the time in these um, situations, um, what we need to do is treat somebody according to the profession of faith that they make. So here's the distinction, and I'll try to make this as clear as I possibly can. When somebody comes to our church and they insist they're Christians, well, we prayed about this, God says it's okay, then we're going to implement church discipline. We're going to tell them that we're going to be patient. It's not like, okay, you've got to make a decision right now or get out. It's not that kind of a thing at all. But we, we, we want to tell them. Now, I, I, I serve really faithful people here, Scott. And if they're living together and they're not married, people here know it, and they're being witnessed to all the time. If we as a church leadership group have to get involved, then we let them know that if you continue to live like this, the Bible says you will not inherit the kingdom of God and yet you lay claim to being a Christian, then we're not going to be able to permit you to keep coming to church. With an unbeliever, our approach would be different. If somebody is coming in and they're living together, they're having sex together um, and they're not married and they don't claim to be born again believers, well then we love on them, we tell them that what they're doing is wrong and make no mistake, you got to tell them what they're doing is wrong. I've even asked people, look, every time you come in here, I know the Holy Spirit's convicting you of sin. And you just keep ignoring them. So why do you keep coming to church? But if they're professing unbelievers, I want them to keep coming. I want them to keep getting convicted. I want them to keep hearing the word. So that's what we do. But if they are professing believers, just recently we had to ask a man to leave the church that we can't give you the cover of the church as long as you're living this lifestyle. And that kind of thing, Scott, always breaks our heart, but it's something that you have to do. You've got to take the veneer of being okay with God away from him. Uh, the Apostle Paul, of course, did this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, it was a, a, somebody who was in sin and their sin was well known. And in fact, some of the Corinthians, remember it was a really carnal church. Some of the people in Corinth were, were boasting about it. Like, oh yeah, you know, we know what they're doing. He happened to be sleeping with his stepmother. And um, um, Paul said, what are you waiting for? I've already handed such a man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul might be saved on that day. Now, we know that that church discipline worked because when we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 Paul appeals on this man's behalf because he has repented welcome him back into the fellowship offer him love and support and encouragement he suffered enough is what Paul is saying so yes we had to put him out but now we're even more obligated to receive him back Scott I think sometimes we have churches, and I've had these exact words replied to me. Well, well, um, we moved to another church. Well, does your new church know that you're living together? Yeah, but they're a non-judging church. 
And I can just tell you that every one of those people, those non-judging Christians or church leadership, uh, when they stand before God, they're going to be judged for causing someone to stumble. So this is just something that we've got to do better on as a church. And truth is, uh, most churches, and I say this to, to our shame, Scott, most churches are more concerned with filling the seats and the offering boxes than they are with pursuing personal holiness. You know, Scott, I, I get questions on this program. You've been a longtime listener, so you've heard them. But people say, why are you always talking about homosexuality and not talking about people who are sleeping together who, who are heterosexuals? And, and I always tell them the same thing. In our church, um, my church will tell you, I talk a whole lot more about heterosexual sin among professing believers than I do about homosexual sin. And I think sometimes we just think, well, you know, this is the way of the world now and it's going to be okay. Um, it's not okay. So I think church discipline uh, is something God will honor. Um, I think we will be considered guilty of causing Jesus' little ones to stumble if we don't exercise church discipline. Um, but remember, church discipline is only for those who are among the church. And I have no problem, Scott, telling people that if they live like that, I don't care what you say about born again, I don't care how long you, you say you've been walking with Jesus, I don't care how many times you were baptized or, or how your mom and dad raised you. If you live like this, if this is a characteristic lifestyle of fornication, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, which means by definition you're not saved. So that's something, Scott, that we got to deal with. So, um, yeah. Well, one other thing, Scott, I, I'm approaching a minute here in the program. I, um, I don't think there's any reason why a woman couldn't go to a man if they're friends and say, you know, you say you're a Christian, but you're living in sin. You shouldn't do this. I just don't know where we got this rule that men can only talk to men and women can only talk to women. That's nonsense. So go to them. Now, you don't want to get involved in intimate conversations with somebody who's not your husband or your wife, but at the same time, we're brothers and sisters in the Lord. So what we've got to be able to do is go to somebody that we love, a brother and a sister, and say, the way you're living isn't right. And you've got to change. You've got to repent. I think that's the loving thing to do. Love covers a multitude of sins. We've got to be willing to be the instrument that God uses to overcome those sins. Big problem in the church, Scott, and I think um, it's something that unless we pay attention to it, uh, we're going to lose what little power we still have. Thanks for the question, Scott. I appreciate it very, very much. Well, there's the music. It means we've come to the end of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 631. May our Lord bless you and keep you. May he wrap his arms around you. And today, let him convince you that he loves you more than you can imagine. God bless. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. 
The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.